And so turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, okay? Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to have a couple of our staff or interns, if you guys are down here, come grab some Bibles. Uh, I want to hit this really quick. I know it's early on in the year. If you do not have a Bible, um, raise your hand up. Get a Bible in front of you. You have no other way of knowing if the stuff we're putting on the screen is stuff we wrote or if if God actually put it in the Bible. And so um, if you do the phone thing, you got the Bible app on your phone, that counts. Just scroll to that. Go to Malachi chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, Malachi is about 60% through the Bible, so just past halfway. It's the last book in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's going to give us a great opportunity this series to be able to unpack what does God have, uh, what did God have for Israel in His calling them out in some of their sin and some of their disobedience, and, and really what does that mean for us? So um, last week we opened up the series with just the first five verses, and and this book is six disputes between God, who is supreme Lord, He's the God of gods, He's and and He says this fifty times over, like I'm that God, I'm the God. God that rules the whole world, that created everything. I'm not just this little tribal deity that they think, it's like, I'm God over all things. And he says, we're going to get into it, me and, and Israel. The first dispute was last week where God says to Israel, I have loved you, right? And, and it's not just a past, but there's a present reality to it. I've loved you. I'm loving you now. I'm going to continue to love you. And then the response of Israel was, how? Okay. How have you loved us? Now, now, God in that moment could have come up with literally a million answers, right? Like he could have said, well, I made you, right? That, that, that could end the discussion pretty quick. Like you wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. Uh, he could have said, I provide everything for you. The air you breathe, I sustain. I hold the world together. He could have said, man, you know all the times that in your sin you found yourselves in serious trouble, but I delivered you and I saved you and I removed you from slavery and I gave you a promised land. I gave you life and I blessed you. He could have said any of those and more. But for God in this moment when he's pressed up, well, how have you loved us? He couches his love in his sovereign choice. He says to them, you know I loved you and I love you now because I chose you, because you're mine, because I brought you in. You belong to me. I chose you. Now, I remember back in high school, I had this buddy, Matt Stewart, and sometimes he listens to these because he's a good, faithful friend. He's my best friend growing up. He's the best man in my wedding. Um, and... Everyone has kind of one of these friends, I think, where they're like annoyingly good at everything, right? Where you, you, like you play a sport, they've never, they're like, oh, I've never done this, and then they beat you, and so you're like, oh, I, I hate you. Like, that's, that was Matt, right? My best friend, but he was always just good at absolutely everything he did. And if you've played kind of recreational sports growing up, and even now, a lot of times you're doing a pickup game, you get 20 people on a field, and then you do what? You choose team captains, and then you just start picking people, right? And then you have your team, their team has that, right? That's a big deal. Matt and I would often be captains against each other in different sports because we're hyper competitive, and I always thought one day I'd beat him, and it never happened. But um, <laughs> I remember this lesson from Matt to this day. Matt would always look out across the whole room, and there were some killer athletes amongst the group, and he would find the one that was by far the worst, and he would pick that person first. Like, every time he would pick that, and he would do it in a way that wasn't like, well, you're clearly the worst, so you come join me. It was, 
hey, I see you, and I just want you to know that I love you. And Matt was kind of like, he was the BMO, like the big man on campus, everyone loved Matt. So to be chosen by Matt was like a big deal. And he would always choose the worst player to be on his team. I would always choose the best, because I wasn't a Christian. Uh, and honestly, that, that's what's going on here, right? I love you. How? I picked you when you deserve to not be picked. Like, it's not that Israel was better than other people, right? It's, it's not that these people had proven themselves to God. If anything, they actively pushed God away, rebelled against him, wanted nothing to do with him. And God says, no, I chose you and I continually choose you. You are my people. I love you. Now, this is massively important because the next five weeks, this week included, are crazy heavy. God, through the prophet Malachi, is going to come at Israel hard. And I think if we allow him, he'll come at the church hard too, but in ways that are couched in week one, which is through a lens of the love of God. It, it's, and let, me, let me describe it this way. It's, it's less of, I love you, but, and more of a, I love you, and. Okay? Now, and there are times where God goes as hard as to use the kind of that I love you but language. But here it's really this feel of like, man, I love you, I love you, I'm here for you, I'm still here for you, and here's some things we need to figure out. Like if we're, if we're to be the people that God has called us to be, there's some things we need to iron out. There's some things, and let's get, it's way beyond iron out. Like there's some stuff we need to, man, like rip apart and start from the beginning and create something new, if we're honest. And so that's what God's doing with Israel. This is kind of week two of this. God starts in on the people, and he's going to deal with the issue of worship. The way that they worship and the way that they approach God, which will also influence the next four weeks in more specifics. So that being said, let's start in verse 6 with God's statement to the people of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? If I'm master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. He's coming to his people and says, it's no longer a question of, do I love you? It's, why do you despise me? God declares to his people. Now, that sounds just really intense, really heavy to come to his people. Why, why do you despise me? And it's their actions. Their actions reflect what is happening inside their hearts, their view, their approach, their worship of God. Now, God identifying, if we just kind of understand the context of what's happening here, God is identifying himself as servant and master. That makes Israel children and servants, right? Like children and servants. He is the one that is above father, master. We are children and servants. This is the place that we find ourselves. However, oftentimes, which you see in the Old Testament, and I think for honest about our own lives, we like to trade places with God pretty often, Okay. God, God, I know you, you say that you're master, and I know that all your credentials back that up, but I'm going to decide how my life goes, right? Like, I will be master of me. You, you can be master of Anthony, right? And it's usually, you can be master of the person I disagree with, because I want them to respond in grace, but I'll do me. And so we flip-flop this, but early on, God's like, listen, Israel, no, I, I'm king, I'm God, I'm the master, you're the servant. This is the roles we play, okay? And we'll talk more about that a bit later. Now, he's specifically, in this passage, going to address the priests. Now, um, 
We don't have priests in that sense, kind of in, the, in, in really what's happening here in the text, and we're going to break that down a bit more. Um, but he's addressing the priests, the spiritual leadership of the people of Israel throughout this text and calling them out because what is happening in the priests is a reflection of what's happening in the people and vice versa. And so they're coming to God, and we're going to see in just a moment, with a polluted way of worshiping him, a polluted offering. Now, the last thing I want to say before we jump into the text, the priests had two main jobs. The first was to mediate God's, the, the worship of God for the people of Israel, okay? Mediate the worship of God for Israel. The second one was to instruct the people of Israel in God's ways. They had to do these two things. God's going to address both of those in this text. So we'll do the first one, and then the second one comes on the back end like a bookend, and in the middle gives us the reason why this is so important. Okay, so here we go. Let's keep going. Israel's response says, but you say, how have we despised your name? Now, this is, this is not this, I really want to know. Please tell me. This is when a friend or a roommate or a spouse or a coworker comes to you and says that you've messed up, you've done something wrong, they're frustrated with you, and you go, oh, really? Really, though? How? Like, that, that's, oh, really? Really? Though? Like, you guys get that. Like, you just kind of, that's not me. You're clearly off base. And so they're arguing with him here, God's response to them. And this is, again, that first piece where the priests are failing to mediate the worship of Israel responsibly. Verse 7. How? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now this is like Wow, that's heavy language from God. He just got done, I love you, I love you, I chose you, you're mine, but I hate you. That the way that you are acting is so contrary to the way I have asked you to act before me. It is so opposite of who I am and my character. And hear me, who you even claim to say I am. Yahweh, Lord of all, ruler, the one that made you. And so he calls out this system. Now, if you're not too familiar with the Old Testament, you have this sacrificial system that existed Okay, where ultimately once a year there was a sacrifice that must be made to atone for the sins, to forgive the sins of the entire nation, okay? That would happen on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay? Then you also have these peace offerings and these burnt offerings and these moments and festivals where the people had this opportunity to come before the Lord to worship and to praise Him by bringing an offering to the altar. To, to celebrate Him, that the nations would know, like, this is the God we follow. We will bring Him our best. Now, that just is common sense. Bring, bring the one that you worship the best that you can. 
But there are also some laws behind it. Leviticus 22, 19 says this, If it is to be accepted for you, this is an offer, a peace offering, peace offering excuse me, um, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. This is a start of just a whole long list that you find throughout the Old Testament law about the type of offerings that should come to a perfect and holy God. And what you're seeing in the people of Israel is the priests were accepting offerings of far less than that. Okay. The, the priests were allowing the people of Israel to worship poorly. The priests were allowing the people of God to live in sin, live in disobedience, live in rebellion. And God's calling them out. It's not the way this is supposed to be. You're supposed to come to me with the best. About five years ago, Verity was turning, I don't know if I'm supposed to do that, Verity was turning 18, and um, so about five years ago, on her 18th birthday, that sounds creepier actually, so that we were married, anyway, so it was Verity's birthday about five years ago, and, um, and so I, I, look, we had a lot going on that year, and the year starts coming, we had Christmas and, and birthday, I think we, we went to, I think New York for Tet that year, I'm Vietnamese, that's like Vietnamese New Year, so there's a lot of stuff going on, needless to say, I forgot about her birthday, right? Yeah, I know. I sound like a delight to be married to. I get it. And so um, we get to like a couple days before her birthday, and we had talked about different things she wanted. I just never got around to it, if I'm just being honest. So the day of her birthday comes, and I wrap a little box that looks like a jewelry box, okay? Um, and it's nice and wrapped, and I'm great at wrapping, so it looks great, and she opens it up, and then she pops open the box, and what do you think I put on the inside? I put in a, a black and white picture of a ring that I might get her, okay? <laughs> she wasn't stoked, okay? And it wasn't just one, though. I put in like 12 pictures and said, you can pick one, right? Like it was the ultimate like Ray Romano moment, right? Like if, you, if everyone knows everybody loves Raymond, that was my Ray moment, okay? And so you look back on that story, and it's, that's ah, kind of funny, whatever. Um, everyone else is like, no, you're a terrible husband. But um, you look back and you're like, oh, well, that's, that's not good, or whatever. Man, what's happening in this situation is a much bigger version of that. Because what did that communicate to Verity? It communicated that she wasn't a priority. It communicated that I forgot about her. It communicated that maybe my love isn't as strong as I often say with just my words. It communicates all of this stuff. Now, was that stuff actually true? I, I think not. I mean, she, she, I love her. She's the greatest thing in my life outside of Jesus. But my actions seem to speak different things. So, so this isn't God being petty about what animal you come to him with. What, what animal Israel came with. This isn't God just being like, oh, I need a really nice animal. It's speaking to an internal reality that both hinders the glory of God and the joy of the people to be who God has called them to be. The outward reflects the inward. And so God comes hard at them because, guys, you're coming to me with this, this, this worship that's just, it's pitiful. It reflects a heart that does not love me. It despises me. I'm calling you out, okay? Now, um, like I said, sandwiched in the middle here uh, is the, uh, the reason why this is, is so massive, okay? And he's going to hearken and jump into this big time. So uh, verse 11, let's read this. 
From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. So so again, the priests are failing in these these two massive areas. The people of God are failing in these two massive areas of, of worship and following right instruction. But in the middle is this mass, why is this so important to God? He says, because my name is important. Because my name must be known. My glory must be known. And why? Because the nations are at stake. Because the world that I long to redeem is at stake. My name shall be proclaimed in the whole world. Let's look at some other verses. Exodus 9.16, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 1 Samuel 12.22, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Isaiah 48, 9 and 11, for my namesake do I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, and he says again, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is big on his glory, big on his name. One, because he's God and deserves every bit of it. And then two, because the nations are at stake. Because he's on a mission to redeem the world. And his name is the name by which all must call upon. So it's, guys, do you understand what's happening? When you you bring a foolish offering, when when you live this way, people don't look to Israel like they're supposed to and say, gosh, that God's the God I'm to follow. They say, that God's pitiful, his own people don't even live for him. They say that, that God can't be true because his own people's actions don't reflect a belief that they actually think he's real and alive and master. What an indictment upon Israel. So he comes at them with this. I remember when I was Pretty young. Um, for those of you who don't know, I know most of you, even though I've told you multiple times, think that I'm Hispanic. I'm not, okay? So I'm half Asian. Uh, and, and this is a massive thing within kind of that side of my family. If you grew up kind of here just in, in the West and uh, with just kind of American influences, it tends to be more kind of this innocent, guilty dynamic, right? Like you're the innocent or guilty, it's a bit more black or white. In, in a lot of Eastern cultures, and so with, with the Vietnamese side of my family, there's a lot of honor and shame that kind of get brought into the conversation, like in massive ways, right? Like, so it's, it's not just like, did you do this right or wrong? It's, did you bring honor or dishonor or shame upon the family? Like, that's the question. And so I remember my, my own which is Vietnamese for, for grandfather. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a pretty young kid, I must have been like five or so, 
um, he calls me into his room, and he did not speak very good English. He immigrated from, from Vietnam with the rest of the family. Uh, and being one of the old, so I'm like the oldest of the cousins, my brother and I. My brother's the older brother, and that's a massive deal in, in our culture. So my mom was the oldest sibling, oldest of 17. So, yeah, I know. Um, and so, uh, and then I'm, my brother and I are the oldest of the cousins, and so that kind of gives us both this privilege and this responsibility in the family. There's this privilege of like, hey, so a lot of times we go to parties and they're just, they do more for us than they should, that type of thing, but there's also this responsibility that comes along with it. So anyway, I come to my, my Ohm's room, and he doesn't speak again very good English, and uh, he just over and over and over kept saying, you're a Nguyen, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking, yeah, me and 40 million other people in this world are Nguyen, but, uh, and that's actually an actual fact that... 40% of Vietnamese people have the last name Nguyen, just so you know. Um, he says, you're a Nguyen. You're a Nguyen. You're a Nguyen. Until I got it. And I didn't really get it. I had to go talk to my brother who had that same conversation seven years prior to me and had to describe to me what he was doing and saying, there's a way that you are to live your life so that this name is honored amongst every place you go. And if you act in such a way that is incongruent with the Nguyen family name, you bring shame upon Om and shame upon Ba and shame upon your family. That's a lot for a five-year-old to take in. <laughs> so maybe we don't understand the weight of what God's doing here. Because maybe we just res- we resort back to this, well, I haven't done anything that bad. I'm not that, I'm not, I'm not guilty, guilty. I mean, I know I looked at this and touched that a little bit, I did this thing, but I, but I haven't done the really bad stuff, right? So we, we kind of slot that into like American law. Well, I haven't actually murdered someone even though I have anger and hatred for my brother in my heart. And so we adopt this mentality of, oh, well, I'm not really guilty. It's like, no, 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 Let, let's move to a different paradigm of what's probably happening in the ancient Near East, which a vision of if you dishonor the name, you are committing a pretty serious act, let alone if that name is the name of the God who made the universe. That's the weight of what he's doing. He's like, listen, I'm big on my name. Why? Because my name will be proclaimed in the world that the world may know who I am, that they might be brought into the family the same way you were. Now, the last little part of this, the other book ends. God's going to call out the instruction piece from the priest, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up with what this means for us. Malachi 2, verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you did not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. And the dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. Hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways 
but show partiality to your instruction. Emphasis on your instruction, Israel. You're not teaching my stuff. You're peddling your own. You're doing stuff that makes life easier for you and those around you. You're not teaching and instructing them in the ways of the Lord. You're instructing them in the ways of you. And that is a devastating and terrifying thing for the priests. Again, two jobs. Mediate the worship of God's people. They failed at that. Instruct the people in the ways of the Lord. Tell them what does it mean to live as in my kingdom, with me as Lord and ruler. Tell them what that looks like. Help them live that out. They're not doing that either. And we don't know the specifics of what they are instructing here, but we know it's got to be the opposite of all the stuff that God has called the people of Israel to. Be a blessing to the nations, to serve one another, to glorify God, to bring the right offerings, to love the sojourner and the neighbor, to live for justice and mercy and compassion to support one another, to leave food for the poor, etc., 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 and the people are not there. So we don't know the specifics, we just know it's way off. So, so we have to begin to then ask some questions about them. One, I mean, how do they get so off track? We said this last week, it was only like about 100 years prior to this that there was this revival amongst the people of Israel. Right? Where they're like, hey, we found the new book of the law, and, and, we're, and we're doing this, and we're, we're following God, and then, man, a couple generations, it's just gone to this. Or even the leadership is corrupted, not teaching God's word faithfully. Now, now some of us might sit in here, and you're thinking, okay, I'm free because I'm not on this stage, right? He's talking to the leadership here. Right? Like, like that, that's the emphasis is on, well, the leaders are doing a poor job. I can kind of just come and do my thing. This isn't for me. Now, that's, please don't think that. That's inaccurate. First Peter 2, Peter employs even Old Testament scripture to point to what this is now is called a royal priesthood and a holy nation. There's a language he uses. And all of a sudden, he expands this vision of the priesthood beyond just the Levites, who were the, the priests that God called to lead the people of Israel. He's now expanding, saying, you know, you are a nation of priests now. Like, all of y'all are intended to help the people of God mediate their worship between him and through Jesus. You are all called to help instruct and teach each other about following him. And where we are failing in that. This is directly God's rebuke to us. This is God saying, hey, what, is, what does this look like for you? What does what your worship look like? And, and what, what does your teaching look like? How are you shaping each other? And I'll just say this, never before in all of history has each and every one of you, hear me on this, had more influence than you believe. Like this, because of social media, because of how stuff, how fast stuff travels, you post something, it is like gospel because they read it somewhere on the internet. I can't tell you how many debates that we get into with people, I mean, debates the right word, but just back and forth we get into people and they usually start with, well, I read this one thing. I read this article or this tweet said this. I'm like, dude, who, from who? They're like, oh, uh, at Joe Blow 47 You have incredible power to shape the people around you. That is a privilege, but it's a responsibility. That God has put upon his priesthood that we would point them 
to God. Are we doing that? Right? So, so th- this, this rebuke was felt by Israel. And here's the deal. We, we don't know from the scriptures how Israel responded, but we do know this. After the book of Malachi, God goes silent for 400 years. We have no other scripture. God doesn't speak directly through the prophets. He goes silent for 400 years until someone shows up named Jesus. It's as if God was like, listen, I'm going to lay all this out there. You're not going to be able to do it. I know that. Here comes the Savior. To build up in the people of God this movement, this desire, this appreciation for the coming of Christ. Now again, where does this place us? The last couple things before we're done. We don't have a sacrificial system like Israel did per se, right? So most likely we're not going to show up to the Uppams and they've got like a, a weird zoo where they just slaughter animals, okay? But we do have a sacrificial system. The new church, the new covenant, the people of God have a sacrificial system in, in two primary ways. Let me look at the first one. Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is Paul in the New Testament writing a letter to the church in Rome and he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a new sacrificial system, and it's your entire life. It's not that the bar's been lowered, the bar's been raised. It's not just, hey, show up to this thing and being a really good animal that's satisfactory to the law. It's everything you do all the time is an opportunity to worship Jesus. That there's not a single moment of your life that you cannot think, man, if I did it this way, who gets the glory? God or me? If I do this this way, who is treasured? Christ or me? If I choose to go this direction, who will be followed? God or me? Now, sometimes we're so benefited by the reality that sometimes those things can come together. But every moment of your life is an opportunity to worship God. Every, like, and I can't, I'll just keep it, every moment of your life, the way you sit here and listen, you can glorify God. The way you allow this information from hopefully the Holy Spirit in your heart to process and renew your mind glorifies God. The way that you leave this place, instead of passing by the person that you know you should say hi to because maybe they're by themselves, you have an opportunity to glorify God. That when you go out to the restaurant today, you have a chance to bless and to love and to show kindness to your server, even if they mess up your meal. That when you get home, you have an opportunity, fathers and mothers, to sit down and talk and be present with your kids that you might glorify God. That tomorrow when you show up to work, wherever you may work, you have an opportunity to show and glorify your God in heaven by how you work, how you love your coworkers, and what does it mean for you to constantly have him in the presence of mind all the time, 
for you students, that you get to show up to class tomorrow, class that maybe you love, maybe you don't love, but you get to be present and help shape a whole new generation that will take that knowledge and be a blessing to our world that it might glorify God. There is not a thing you do that now is not part of this new sacrificial system. That's who we are. This is heavy and daunting and difficult. And if we're not willing, and I'm not saying we'll do this perfect, and we'll get that in just a moment, but if we're not willing to pursue that, maybe we echo the words of God to the people of Israel. If there were not just one of you that would stand up and say, what's the point? Let's close up and go home. Tim Mon, who's the lead pastor at Redemption Gilbert, said this quote in our preaching collective, and he said this. He says, you know, it's better to close the doors than light useless fires. What we so have loved, 2019, is talking to the different staff and with the eldership, and I felt like it was such a year of God just being really gracious to us and forming us in some awesome ways. And I think, honestly, that Advent offering was like a sign of that, of, of us starting to give up a little bit more of us. And, and man, I mean, I'll just be me. I've got a ton of way to go. But Lord, it's, it's overcome more of me, please, right? Like, o- overwhelm us more, not just individually, but corporately. Like, God would rule this church. That, that all of us would be like, no, he's master. So whatever he says, like, that's what we're going to do. I, it's, it's crazy. It's not what I want to do today. I'd ra- but we're in. Would he be so gracious to continue to form us in that? That we would glorify him and be a faithful witness to the watching world. Because if we're not, listen, then this is not just for redemption. It's like, why do we do this? Why are we here? Why do you guys come and, and hear us talk about this for 45 minutes? Why do we sing songs if he's not master? Now, all of this is a pretty heavy burden. And even some of that, you're hearing that, you're like, gosh, you know, it's way too heavy. And the answer is like, yeah. But it's meant to move you to one place. And that's to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Like, God will come so hard at Israel, and he'll come hard at us in our hearts when we let the Spirit speak to us. And every bit of it, hear me, if you hear anything right now, like hear this part, if you weren't paying attention the whole time, that's fine. Just pay attention to this, okay? All of it is meant that your mind, your heart, your body, your actions, your soul would be drawn to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every part of it. Because in the midst of this whole system, the second part of that sacrificial system, which is really the primary part, is that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for us. That all the weight and the burden of trying to be obedient, trying to fulfill, trying to do this because we want to serve the Lord, but we know we'll do terribly at it most of the time, draws us to the person who did it right every time. So this way, when we come and we're getting ready to sing some more songs, Johnny and the band are going to lead us in that, right? Like, man, wh- you're singing to a God who's alive and who hears and will be glorified in that because of what he's done. 
That is the mo- only motivating factor for you to do anything we talked about today. Living sacrifice, that sounds awful. But if God did it, and if now he empowers us by his presence to do the same, if by reflecting upon the cross and the resurrection, we can gain that perspective, say, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I'm going to give a good swing of it tomorrow. That's the movement of this entire book, drawing Israel and now drawing us to say, gosh, we need to, well, we need Jesus. They were saying something different. We need God. We need Jesus. The mediator, the perfect sacrifice, the one who instructs us through the power of the Spirit. Everything we fail at, he does perfectly. Listen, church, depend on him. It's a thing that we can pursue in 2020. Depend on Jesus. Love Jesus. Follow Jesus. Be with Jesus. Get around people that do the same. Okay? Get a mentor. Be in community. All that kind of stuff. That Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because in that, that's how, this, that's how this gets fixed. It's not by us saying we're going to try harder. It's by us falling deeper in love with Christ. We said it a lot towards the end of last year, and I think it's important for us to keep hearing in the new year. The more you fall in love with Christ, beware. You'll start acting like him. You'll start wanting to be like, gosh, man, I think I do want to love that way. And that costs a lot. But I'm so excited to be on that journey with you all to be that faithful people that God was calling Israel and now us to be. He says in Romans 1.5, in Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Among this whole deal, the opportunity to present him in splendor to the watching world. The more I look out on our city, on our nation, on the world, more than ever do I think the church needs to be the church. But it starts with us loving Jesus. Israel's primary priority in their entire existence was to love him and give him glory. The rest would come after. So church, will we do the same this year as we pursue him, yeah? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. God, will we be repentant where we need to? God, will we follow you? God, where we, uh, we have disbelief, help us in our disbelief. God, the parts of our life that we're still holding on to to say, no, I'm master and you're not, God, would you just pry our hands open? I don't know, that's a, that's a terrifying prayer in a way, God. Because you'll pry our hands open in, in ways that we don't love. But we acknowledge, God, it's better to have you as master over our life than ourselves. So Jesus, we love you. Help us see you more clearly as we approach this series with a desire to learn to be called out. Because you deserve your glory and the nations are at stake God, there is great joy in being your people. We are loved. We are chosen. We love you, God. In Christ's name, amen. One last thing that I'd like to say, and I wanted to save it just kind of for this last moment, is I also don't want you to hear what I said there as if God isn't coming hard at leadership here, because he is. 
Um, so I, I don't want to come across like I'm skirting God trying to call specifically me, the rest of the pastors and elders and staff at our church out, and say like, no, there's, there's something you really need to heed here. And I want you to know at a full level, do we accept and understand the weight of that calling? And I don't know the story but of all of you, but I do know that a lot of you we've spent time with where you've had legitimate and real hurt from the church, specifically from leaders in the church, specifically from male leadership in the church. I acknowledge all of that. I do want to say very specifically that at any point, if some of you have something like that, where we have hurt you or we have done something, and I'm not, please, listen, it's not like, well, I didn't like the way you said this, this one thing when, you know, like, but if there's legitimate hurt that's come from this end of things, please let us know. Like, we want to repent, we want to learn from that stuff, okay? And also there's a massive reality that we understand the Bible also says that the leadership of our church and of the church will have to give an account one day not just of our own lives, but of yours as well. Which is just really scary. That one day I'll stand before Jesus and not just have to tell him about my own junk and be like, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but I got to come and be like, he's going to be like, hey, tell me about Johnny. I'm like, he's got big hair. I mean, like, I, he's going to say, tell me about Johnny's life. Right? He's going to say, tell me about Curtis and Shirley. That's like terrifying. That <laughs> I will stand before God. And so I, I, I want to land there because I understand that I don't want it to come across like we don't see that. We absolutely see that. And it is our true joy to be part of leading and shepherding this people. But we also want you to know, like, we do it with you. We do it with you. And that... That's what we're inviting this church into in this year is this greater move towards wholeness, unity, health, that we might be the faithful church that we're called to be.